politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Just as a warning, today we're talking about online safety for kids and with that comes discussion of the types of abuse that can happen to children. Discretion is advised, especially for individuals who may find such topics distressing or triggering. So how can we best protect kids online without changing the entire internet? You absolutely cannot. I think you can. You just have to nuke the entire internet and build it again. New. Well, we just asked if you could do it without changing the entire internet. Well, you can't. Nuking it is a pretty big change. <laughs> so with our guest today, we're going to try to figure that out. Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Today we're talking with the director of the Safe Online Initiative of the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children, Maria Manoilovich. Welcome to What the Hack. Where are you coming to us from today? So I'm dialing in or like streaming in from Geneva, from Switzerland, but I am originally from Montenegro. Switzerland. Yeah. I wish I were there right now. Many people do. <laughs> there are worse places to be. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what led you to child online safety? I believe that so much of the trauma and the damage of the world today really stems from the violence of the past. As we are seeing children affected at new scales and speeds and through new technologies in the online world, I think that we risk amplifying and recreating cycles of that abuse and violence. So when I started working on children's rights almost two decades ago, I had quickly realized two things. One is that dealing with violence against children and solving those issues is one of the most, single most impactful things that we can do because Preventing violence against children will unlock all the other areas of their development in life. Education, health, socializing, skills, work, everything else. If kids are victims of violence, they can't do any of those things. Number two is that violence against children is becoming increasingly facilitated or amplified by digital technologies. So those are the two things that really made me compelled to work in this space because I really believe there is no single more important currently job that I can do in the world. And before you became a advocate for children's rights in the digital space, what inspired you to become an advocate for children in general? Um, well, I come from Balkans and Balkans are really, really complex mm -hmm. <laughs> Geo geography and space. And, and growing up, I witnessed a lot of um, inequity, poverty, civil unrest and wars. And again, children suffer the most in these situations, being able to really work on giving the voice to the voiceless, and children are usually voiceless, 
was one of the things that I always wanted to do. So it's a very personal, personal mission that I have. All right. So you're from Montenegro and you're no stranger to the kinds of dangers that children see in real life, not online. Um, how do you distinguish between online and, you know, in real life safety for children? I don't like to define child online safety. I'd like to define child safety as principal human right and child right. And look it through the lens of how that safety is ensured in different environments. Uh, when you think about the online space, the same rights that kids have in the offline world apply in the online world, but the settings are somewhat different. What are some of the biggest threats that children face online right now? And what are some of the most common threats they face online? So currently, I feel there are two, two major harms and risks for kids online. Uh, one of the ones that is most spoken about is cyberbullying, mm-hmm. because I think it's, it resonates with a lot of people and it, it affects a lot, a majority, majority of kids online. But in addition to cyberbullying, and this is what, what I am particularly focusing on, we are seeing that grooming of children for sexual sexual purposes as well as extortion are probably the most prevalent threats for kids online, in addition to the same ones being the most serious ones. If you look at the reports of the National Center for Michigan Exploited Children in the U.S., you will see that in 2022, 32 million uh, of suspected reports of child sexual abuse uh, were made by, by industry to the center. And this is the highest number of reports in one year. If in 98, if you look at the figures in 98, there, those reports were 3,000, and now they're 32 million. 22 of these 32 million reports, they contained 87 million photos and videos of children being sexually abused. And oftentimes people say, well, you know, 32 million is not a big number because this contains, you know, images of kids who were abused maybe a decade ago. It's just the same image being recirculated. But the fact that out of these 32 million reports, 50,000 were marked as urgent to act because a child was in an imminent danger, that gives you a bigger scale, a bigger picture of how the things actually look like. And we've been doing a lot of research on this because, again, it is not often that people ask kids for their experiences and opinions. So we have funded a big 25-country scale, 25-country research called Disrupting Farm. And the research has been completed now in 13 countries in Southern and Eastern Asia and Southeast Africa. And what we have discovered is, is really astonishing because in many of these countries, up to 20% of kids have experienced some form of online child sexual exploitation and abuse in one year alone. When you scale that to population, this is 5 million plus kids in 2021 alone. So then I looked for something of a comparison for U.S. context, and this would mean that 5 million kids is akin to every middle and high school student in California. So imagine every middle and high school student in California being sexually abused online. Um, So there's a huge, huge, huge pandemic uh, of online abuse, and we are not tackling it in the right ways. Is it different from region to region? Do you see something different in developing countries versus, um, you know, somewhere like the United States or Germany? Uh, wh- what are we looking at? Online CSCA is a very, I call it CSCA, child sexual exploitation and abuse, is a very complex phenomena. Um, but in many ways, some of its manifestations are really the same in the developing world and in the developed world because kids' lives online are somehow a little bit different from their local realities. And we've seen these with this with like 
research in, 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 in Ghana, in Tanzania, in, in the Philippines, kids who have different local, cultural, religious realities in the offline world tend to behave differently in the online because they have their global community online. So their behaviors become much more risk-taking, much more different than they would behave in situations where their parents are around, at their schools, or there in, in the communities or whatever they live. So manifestations of these particular issues for kids who are using internet are similar. So you will have a lot of kids have normalized sharing of nudes. Kids, nudes or so-called explicit material of kids when they take a photo of themselves and share with their peers or whoever they think they're sharing it with. And this has become normalized. For example, the research in the US shows us that around one in five kids aged nine to 12 think it's normal to share nudes with each other. One in five of these kids have shared their own nudes already, and this is nine to 12 year olds. 15% of nine to 10 year olds have shared their own nudes with somebody. In 50% of the cases, they've shared it with somebody they don't even know. So these things we are seeing repeatedly being similar in many contexts. But when you look at the abuse of younger kids, that's different because in places where poverty and deprivation are higher, it is more easy to access kids in more vulnerable situations and then abuse them and then record that abuse and put it online. You mentioned CSA, which stands for child sexual abuse. How worried should we be about the increasing usage of AI to be generating fake images of it, uh, but still depicting the same level of abuse? Very worried. Um, I would say particularly because there are two things. One is that anybody can now create child abuse material. And the, especially the open source models are being used and tweaked in ways that can accommodate this very easily. And we are already seeing the dark web reports of predators who are, you know, exchanging images there, exchanging also prompts and manuals on how you can actually create this child abuse material. They're like fake. They're, there's, there's not an actual person behind them. But they're also recreating images of known victims and creating new images of known victims. So the faces of known victims are being used to create new situations and new, new either videos or images. There are two things that are here critical to know. One is that once you have your image being shared, either it's a, it's a fake or a real image of you in these situations, it really re-victimizes the victims. The perpetual victimization continues and you can't ever get out of it. And that's why it's so important to remove child abuse material overall from, from the internet, from online world. Well, one of the other problems with uh, generative AI, too, is that it requires an existing data. So even if you're creating an um, image of a fictitious person, that needs to be a composite from previous uh, footage, unfortunately. Correct. And, and a lot of these people who have been uh, very passionate about, about um, collecting child abuse material actually have millions and millions of pieces of imagery that they can use to, 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 to do exactly that. We've noticed also that there are when people go to the platforms and they try to bring it to their attention, that this isn't them. This is something that was AI generated. Then there's the whole issue of the platform saying, are you sure you don't have any photographs of you out there? Since, since you started your advocacy work, have the threat, I mean, how have the threats changed? And, and do you see a trend in any specific direction? Yeah, it's, uh, things are, this is, I think, one of the most dynamic Unfortunately, I say dynamic, it sounds exciting, but unfortunately, one of the most dynamic fields because really the threats to kids is changing from one year to another. So for example, three years ago, we did not see a lot of issues around self-generated. So kids taking photos of themselves and that being a huge, huge explosion of that. Now we've seen increases of 200, 300% from year to year. 
because it's becoming so normalized. And then some of these images are really consensually shared. Kids sharing, not knowing what they're doing, sharing nudes of themselves with through sexual exploration or with their friends or whatever it is, not knowing that it's actually an offense to do that. But the second thing is that kids are getting much more easily groomed and coerced and tricked into doing those things. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it, I like it, and they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing, and I need to make split-second financial decisions, and that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks, and I trade options, and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. Okay, so everyone is familiar with this idea that I can't let go of, which is that when you're online, you're in a horrible neighborhood. When you are in the real world, sometimes you can find yourself in a horrible neighborhood, and there's some basic rules for staying safe. Don't make eye contact, you know, mind your own business, keep to yourself. Um, and, and the corollary online would be, you know, mind your privacy, be careful about what you click, and don't talk to strangers. Um, but are there specific things that people can do, specifically children can do, specifically things we can teach children to do online that will keep them safer than other things? I always give an example of, because I have a toddler, and when I think about how did we do like baby-proofing the apartment, right? You assess what the risks exist in your apartment. You're looking at your like glass vases, you're looking at the electricity outlets, and you're like, okay, so now I'm going to be not waiting for my child to like put a metal bar in the outlet. I'm going to put you know a plug there. 
will you fully minimize risk and will the child, the, you know, child be super safe? No, like she'll fall every day. She'll break stuff every day. But will we minimize the potential for really serious harm? Yes, we will. The same goes for platforms. Which feature you apply on your platform and who do you allow to enter on your platform will determine the risk, the risk profile that you have. So, for example, if your platform is matching strangers to strangers, likely you should not have kids online there, right? You should have some age verification mechanisms or age assurance mechanisms that can keep kids outside of there because kids being served to strangers is not a good thing. So thinking about having a vulnerability lens as you develop your platform, whether you're a startup or you're existing big platform, applying vulnerability lens and seeing how the choices that you're making as a platform can impact users on it is critical. So it's all about safety by design and really investing from upfront into considerations like this. Unfortunately, the culture, especially Silicon Valley and around, is not like that. It's more about actually trust and safety people are being see seen as devils, right? Oftentimes, child online safety people, I love that we are being called, um, we are the ones who are trying to end privacy online, like stuff like that. And it's like really not the case because I believe, I'm a huge believer, I always say, but in some ways it can create much more risk than the other ways. How do you realistically uh, monitor age restrictions? I mean, it's one thing to say we should, but it's another thing to say we, we can and will make it happen. How do you do that? I mean, we, by investing in innovation in that space, like you need to be actually, we can't just say current state is like this, that we can't really do anything. There are a lot of good, good age assurance verification tools that can be used. They're less accurate than the fuzzy age around like the late teens. So it's difficult to actually like accurately assess that particular point. But for younger than 13, it's actually really accurate. So those tools already exist. And there are some privacy, privacy, privacy advanced ways that it can be do, like done, uh, like tokenizing, you know, third party, third party assurance mechanisms where you can like tokenize each person. So you get a token, I am of age, and then you can go and use that token across platforms. Solutions like that are being tested right now. But we know that platforms have so much data that actually accurately assesses the age of users, regardless of the information you provide to them, because they know your behavior, behavior patterns and they already, already have access to that data. They're using that for micro-targeting. They're using that for like very specific you know, ad provision. Everything is about personalization nowadays, right? Um, so we know that that is possible, but we also know that it's not really, you know, it's when you look at profit, profit interests, People will always choose profits over, but it's always choose profits over doing the right thing, which is unfortunate. So I think we need to be much more, much more firm and bold in our request to what platforms they need to do, and also potentially much more bold in how we can legislate some of these things. You can invest in innovation. I understand that, but um, it's it's a pretty blanket phrase. I want to invest in becoming richer. I mean, okay, so how am I going to do that? That is a real nitty-gritty question. It's not an abstract question. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine is a gun collector, and he has his guns in a safe. And his kid knows the combination to the safe. How safe are those guns? They're not safe at all because the child knows how to get into the safe. Now, there are biometric safes that he could be using. There are biometric tools that we use for cybersecurity, specifically for authentication. That said, you're opening up a whole new can of worms when you're saying my minor child 
needs to provide a big company or a small company, any company at all, their biometric information, sorry, that's a bigger problem. So how do you realistically, just doubling down on this question, make sure children aren't there when children can be sneaky? Children are, they make, they don't have jobs. Their whole job is being sneaky. Listen, kids are sneaky. Kids are smart. Kids are much better tech than we will ever be. So they will find a ways to go around them. Our job is to make that experience frictionful, right? The more friction points you can create to them entering some unsafe space, that's the best way you can do. You will never fully safe-proof any space, whether it's physical or digital. But your job and our job is to make that as hard for them as possible so that they can't actually expose themselves to the most harmful experiences. Second job you have is if your platform is, and there are good examples of this, if your platform bears a risk, and every platform does, making sure that you can actually enforce your terms of use, if you have them, if that's what people subscribe to, you should be able to guarantee that that's what you will deliver to them. There are platforms, there is a European platform for live streaming called Yubo, and Yubo was very popular during COVID, continues to be. And it's basically just live streaming anything. People actually like love to see each other sleep. That's a big thing on Yubo. Like literally that was their biggest trend of the year was like people like watching each other sleep. So Yubo has realized that unless they're going to get synced and closed over child abuse, they had to ensure there is no nudity. So they said like, we can't age assure because there's always going to be children on our platform. But for us to be able to to stop that is we're going to actually ban for adults and kids nudity. So now Yubo is still super used, not probably as much as it would be if there was nudity on it, but they now have filters for nudity and they're applied across the platform. And they said, our business model depends on us being able to actually guarantee that there is no child abuse. So they've decided something that's going to cut their profits, still keep them be profitable and used to some extent, but much more safe than any other platform of similar live streaming nature. So... There was a little thing called Chat Roulette online about 10 years ago, and it really was just people live streaming and getting sent, you know, Russian roulette style to whomever was next. And a big feature of Chat Roulette was you'd just be sitting there minding your own business and a very odd person would be appear in front of you doing something uh, that kids would describe as dirty. (laughs) (laughs) And... I have no idea what happened to Chat Roulette, but it was a daily way for people to sexually abuse children and other people because they were able to be nude. They were able to do whatever they wanted nude, and you had no control over who appeared before you. And it still exists. Now, that's a really extreme example of the Wild West years of the Internet. We're still... Weirdly so, a decade later, it still feels like the Wild West. Now, is that just profit motive? Because to me, that's too easy. It's, is, it, is it profit motive? I mean, it, it's just, if that's the case, then shame on everybody. I would say it's a mix of things. Like, definitely the crazier and more risk-taking or exciting or enraging the platform is or creates opportunities for people enraged or like excited or like adrenaline rush, it it will have more users. So it's driven by by increasing number of users, right? So increased number of users, we're gonna get you better ad business or better, you know, data. You can collect more data, you can do all of these things. So it's driven by the need for amassing 
assets, whether those assets are profits or data that you can then again monetize or or is uh, getting people more engaged, you can then play more space for whichever other type of engagement it is. So like, I do think there is there is a, a big mentality of scale and magnitude of engagement that is that is driving a lot of the design choices. And the more you can engage, the more you want the same 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 thing happening, right? Um, and I think that we don't allow that in the offline space. You don't have people dropping strangers, weird strangers in like quotes, like in front of you, like in parks. I used to see, like you know, growing up in Podgorica, Podgorica in the war years, right? Like I don't. So people don't do that to you. Like I started thinking, you know what? I also started thinking. I started thinking recently about the decay of social media. And what I think is going to happen soon is, and we're already seeing some of the platforms decaying and being abandoned, like Facebook, for example. But the more the decay happens, the less investment continues in trust and safety, the less you protect your infrastructure. And I started thinking about these online spaces as old abandoned buildings. Like, you know, like imagine any old, um, like abandoned amusement park. Um, and it's creepy. It's dark. In abandoned buildings, like, creepy things happens because they're like unknown people or there is like a lot of a lot of things like you know things can fall in your head like and i started thinking about these online spaces as these disregarded uh abandoned neglected spaces that soon will become so much more dangerous and then you will have this trust platform movement because how kids are being abused online doesn't happen all on the same platform you're going to get a kid on a gaming platform you're going to move them to a snapchat you're going to move it from a snapchat to a whatsapp you're going to move it from a whatsapp to somewhere else because the darker space or the less insight you have, the, le- the the more you can get out of the child, right? So again, like, there's a lot of stuff that we need to discuss as we think about overall infrastructure of the internet and how things happen across platforms, as well as different platform-specific uh, design choices, um, if we are to think about safety more comprehensively. But I agree with you, no? Like, Bo, like I, I don't think that currently many of the tools that we speak about are really advanced as we want them to be. But there needs to be consideration and investment in making safety tools more accessible, more privacy-preserving, more focused on the safety of users, and more just enabling of participation of people. Because it is about democracy at the end. Kids will be losing their opportunities to participate, to advance, to enjoy the good sides of the digital technology, as women are currently being expelled from different online spaces because of the harassment and and abuse they are facing. Um, So yeah, this for me is also an issue of participation and issue of of, democratic choice as much as it is safety and protection. You know, the, the first thing is that, that uh, you know, part of the structure of the internet was that it was built without identity verification in mind. It was supposed to be, the, you know, this wide open, free-spirited communication platform for everybody. W- what do you think about that? This is a great example, Adam, of a utopia, utopian worldview that... Um, is waiting for the pop. You know what the pop sound is? It's the sound of your head coming out of your... Anyway, the... (laughs) (laughs) Utopia, utopia, utopian people have the... Always have that blind spot. What what about that? You know, like, I think the internet was built, and I'm so sorry to say this again, like, but it was built by a bunch of, like, white men Mm -hmm. who were sitting in, like, you know, some places which were like echo chambers of like like-minded people who do not have same world experiences as like the rest of the world. And you bring that in and you say like, listen, you had a really nice idea and in your world this fully applies, but like your world is like tiny and the actual world is like so much bigger and so much fuller of other things and other 
choices and thoughts and values and cultures and religions and approaches to life. And none of those things are necessarily bad by themselves, but you just open, you open the can of worms for like so much bad stuff. And we are seeing that like, and then add on top of that, the, the whole, the whole boom around use and misuse and, you know, like free services and then, but be, you know, it's free, but it's actually just your data that we want. And then like monetizing the data that it becomes. And, and I also am conflicted in many ways as an individual as well as professional. Like I like the anonym, anonymity bit of it. Like I think anonymity, anonymity is really critical for democratic processes. Like being able to anonymously share your thoughts and opinions is really critical. But then like full anonymity in any way, in every way, on every possible platform does create a lot of risks if you can't verify who your users are on specific, in specific circumstances or specific services, then it becomes neglect because know your customer is something you should be, you should be doing, right? It's also a Petri dish for disinformation, misinformation. Correct. Can I tell you something about that? Um, I was just recently in Kyoto for Internet Governance Forum and I met my personal hero, Maria Ressa, who is the Nobel Peace Prize winner. She is working a lot on misinformation and disinformation. And she was, we were talking about how we end up in these fights between privacy and safety because like we are being fitted against each other because we all deal with these downstream issues. How do you do content moderation? And then she says, content moderation is such a, such a misleading way of approaching things because she says content moderation is almost imagine a river. There's a huge river and then you take a small cup of water from that river and then you clean it and you clean a small cup and then clean that piece of water and then you put that cup back into the river and then like the river is still super dirty and it's full of these things and you just keep on cleaning small bits and pieces of it but you're not actually dealing with the, with the upstream issues. If anybody tells you that privacy and safety are not both possible, it's because they don't want to be dealing with those issues at yep. the same time. So the, that's a great metaphor, obviously. Well, it does make sense given that it came from a Nobel laureate. You had said earlier that, you know, privacy, the, the death of privacy means that these big platforms, they know who's on, who's, who's, who's on the computer. They can tell by the things that you're searching, by the things that you're, that you're doing. And um, so they have a fairly good idea. And, and even if it's the kid who knows this, the combination to their father's safe, you know, they know that that isn't the dad looking at risque content online. That's the kid because the kid looks for slightly different things. And with the death of privacy, all of these things are totally possible to gateway and say, this is a kid. This kid can't see this. This is an adult. This person can see it. So instead of trying to clean the one cup of water, you start to think about what is the behavior of the organisms in the river and then identify them by their behavior and stop them from doing certain things. That seems to me to be the answer is to program something that can help navigate the river. that the river is messy and connected and like you can't create parts of the river that are like child safe and parts that are not. So like, what if you then identify a child in this river and you're like, you then just play this tiny bit of a river and then you have to like keep them there. Like, how do you secure like, so I think I think there is something around, something around um, really thoroughly thinking about, um, again, the design choices and then every river, so every platform should have mechanism to report abuse 
which is transparent, like which is like very clear what it is. You should have clear sense of like if you report abuse, what will happen next. You should have a sense of what detection technologies are they using to actually detect detect abuse. What is allowed? Like those things are not works through. Like they're not actually like actually figured out at this point in time, because many like if you think about, but I at the beginning of the podcast I mentioned 32 million reports of child sexual abuse happening just last year to NICMEC, to the National Center of Missing Exploited Children. Out of those 32 million reports, I think around 29 million came from Meta, from Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, because they do detect the most. Do you know how many reports came from Apple last year? I think it was 173. 173. Not thousands or millions, 173. Because Apple not only does not detect anything on their cloud services anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. They also don't have a transparent mechanism for their users to actually report if they encounter abuse or child abuse material. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. So one thing is like privacy at all costs, great, but then at least enable users who are using your services to be able to report. That's a very transparent and safe way of doing it, right? It's not that privacy invading at all. But we also have, we, like, there's just no unified and really consolidated way of thinking about prevention of abuse currently on any platform. What what does legislation look like that moves us in the right direction? I think we should not be, first of all, scared of legislation because you can iterate on it and you can do various things with it. I think legislation should set standards and guiding principles towards what we should be all be aiming for. I always advise for tech-neutral regu- regulation and legislation because you don't want to be regulating every every five months or like every three years because tech is changing so fast. But regulating some of these principles around age-appropriate experiences, safety measures, design choices, impact assessments, looking at risk profiles, things that can be mandated by law can look like you as an online platform have to do this meant this type of threat assessment at the beginning of your uh, cycle of development. Um, do vulnerability lens analysis of how this can impact, you know, engage with the users, engage with people who can be affected. Bring on board vulnerable communities and, and, and people. So, like, you can mandate processes that can result in certain technological choices and decisions down the pathway of development. I am much more against legislating specific, specific technological solutions because you will end up in the rabbit hole of or how does this work actually in practice? Or like, how can you apply that technology or that te- that tools to a specific platform? Um, but we are seeing good developments. Um, as I mentioned before, in UK, uh, Child Online Safety Bill was adopted. It has, of course, a lot of shortcomings, but it has a lot of good stuff as well. Um, EU, the Digital Services Act, has a really good way of looking at platforms of different size and different development stage to mandate different ways of uh, activities across. Um, we've seen... President Biden recently do the AI executive order um, because he's not seeing any hopes of Congress ever legislating on that. We just need to stop treating online world as something of a unicorn. It's so different and so precious that we can't really ever like touch it because if we touch it, everything will crumble and innovation will die. Like that's not the case. There are good examples of industries being regulated and safety standards being introduced for the betterment of the actual industry. And that we have seen across the car industry, you know, hospitality, wherever you go, whenever you have standards of safety, um, airspace. Sure. Car industry was legislated and became safer. Um, OSHA legislated lots and lots of different workplace things to make workers safer. These are physical dangers. 
When cars were legislated, they were legislated to not have things sticking out on the dashboard so that when someone got in an accident, it didn't kill them. When, when certain saws were legislated to be safer, they had guards put on them. And these are physical dangers. Don't geolocate children or like don't put kids in touch on a, on a chat roulette with somebody who's right. It's like, don't let, don't let a chat roulette creep, creep at your kid. Like finding ways to reduce these type of clear risks that have been documented. I mean, the Surgeon General of, of US has issued advisory on, on the impacts of social media, right, of kids. And then in a lot of the cases, again, people are, people are constantly doubting, uh, well, um, we can't really say that social media is causing the mental health crisis in our uh, adolescents uh, because like, that's only uh, correlation, it's not causation. Like, really? I also believe that when you talk about legislation and, you know, OSHA, and yes, there are a lot of those dangers that have been, over the years, um, more regulated now and people are better protected. But that legislation also involved individual units, whereas where you're talking now, you're talking about something that has worldwide impact simultaneously. This is even more dangerous than anything that we can think of to date. Well, that's exactly right. And I, I think that that's why I'm trying to get at not an abstract notion of what, you know, the problem is and how to fix it, but like specifically, what are you going to do? There is the view in which we are, we, we, we speak about current configuration of the internet and online platforms as something that it's a given. And then we have to adjust our regulation, our lives to it, not the other way around. Like how do you actually change present configurations of the online platforms to meet the needs of humans? Like why are we, why are we okay to accept that this, this, uh, basically surveillance-based data collection models are the way that we need to live. And now we have to find a way to make them more safe, but we can't actually change them. Like, that's my question. Like, why can't we think in bigger? Why can't we think about changing the actual, why is the, 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 the reason why platforms are not kicking kids off the platform because they drive engagement. The kids, kids are the, kids spend the most time online and the kids are one in three users of the internet are children, one in three. In many places, it's one in two because there is larger population of kids in many, many places in the world. So when you think about that, kicking them off the platform is not really profitable. Using them to monetize your products is. So creating like specific products for kids, engaging them. We remember also the attempt of Instagram to do Instagram kids at some point in time, which was killed because there was a huge outrage over that. Like we, we have to stop thinking about the online world um, as immutable set of platforms that we need to then like build safety measures around instead of changing some of the core functionalities of this platform to change those models. And those can be changed as well, because why are we allowing serving no commercial content to kids? That should not be allowed. You should not be able to commercialize kids' data. That should not be allowed. That shouldn't be illegal. These type of things, we need to just get have some, have some boldness and, and start regulating, because soon it's going to be late. We are losing a generation of kids in these, in these completely like Wild West uh, circumstances in the online world. Well, let's think of it this way. That's a solution that's disguised as a question. And if you change the nature of surveillance, maybe you change the online world.
Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rose got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means you get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes dot com. If you could walk into the United, and I know you've worked uh, with the United Nations, but if you could walk into the United Nations and you're up on the podium in front of the gathering of all the countries and you could give them one piece of wisdom that you think would help make the world more child safe, what would you say? I would, I would say, and I'm talking to governments, right? I would say to governments, make sure that your, make sure that businesses need to think about safety from the get-go, regulate that one bit, make risks assessment obligatory part of any business model, whether it's Look, looking at children or any other type of vulnerable vulnerable population, you need to think about the people and having safety by design embedded in the processes, and that can look like different for different models, different platforms, is the most important thing that you can do in terms of online safety, is safety by design. What if we just said end surveillance economies? What if that was the ask? I would love but that. But wouldn't that solve the problem? Why do we accept surveillance economies? There shouldn't be surveillance economies. I do think that surveillance economy or whatever you want to call it, that the internet currently is not designed for the benefit of humans. And I think designed either for benefit of humans and not businesses is the critical thing. And don't collect the data when the data should not be collected and don't monetize people's data and don't do any of those things that are putting people in right. danger. 
But again, dangerous practices drive engagement. And that's why our kids are being put in dangerous situations because dangerous and exciting adrenaline building and outraging activities are the ones cool that yeah. generate the most content. Yeah. But again, that's 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 just me. Thank you for that. I, I like that. I would actually say that at UN. <laughs> I think you should say it. And I think like we're just gonna say, look, how about this? Let's change everything. <laughs> say you're just walking out of addressing the UN and now you're actually just gonna talk to a parent. What advice do you have for parents to keep their children safe online? That's a very good one. But so the first most important thing is safety by design or ending surveillance economy, right? The second one is start having these conversations with your child as early as possible. And don't assume the child would not share their nudes because they will. Like, so just assume, like, you can just tell your child, once you decide to share your nudes, can you please talk to me so we can decide about a safe way to do it because they will do it. Start normalizing these conversations as early as possible. It's just a, it's just a regular parenting parenting advice. The more you're open to them and the more and the less stigma exists around potential harms that can happen to them online, the more likely they will be to tell you about bad experiences. And this is something that we have seen really be critical for prevention of suicide at the end of the time, the tunnel, kids not reporting, living with trauma, getting off school, doing all sorts of bad things because they feel so much shame and so much unbearable sense of failure that they can't actually cope with it. So the more you can be open. And the, so my advice is never surveil your child. My advice is never be controlling. My advice is always just be open to whatever the child is doing, but be open in a way that can they can come to you. Because when people think about reporting of these crimes, there are many ways of disclosing. Reporting is not only picking a phone or reporting. Reporting is talking to a friend. So really build a nurturing environment that are around your child so they can be free to tell you about their experiences. Which this brings us full circle to the whole purpose of this program, which is to create a shame-free zone where people feel it's okay to talk about things that have happened to them. There's nothing that's wrong. It's all about sharing experiences, sharing threats, sharing solutions, but creating an environment where people feel safe. And that's what you're talking about in a family, creating an environment where kids feel safe, that they can talk to you about whatever they're thinking or whatever they're doing and not feel like they're going to get a 22-hour lecture or you're going to send them to their room and starve them for the next three months. Yeah, deprive them on the, of, of the internet. Adam, that's a really perfect, perfect uh, way of saying it. And I do want us to say one more thing because there's a huge misconception around who is the danger for kids. There's a whole narrative from ages ago, stranger danger, right? That is so false because even in the online world, the perpetrators are usually people that kids know. I really learned something today. Thank you so much. Maria, you were, you're totally awesome. And uh, if people want to find out more about you and the work you do, where would they go? Just go check us out on safeonline.global. Safeonline.global? Dot global. Correct. Great. Now it is time for the tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe on and offline. Well, the holiday season has officially been here since, I don't know, Labor Day? As far as some retailers I know are concerned, I think it started in late August. Yeah, not even Labor Day, huh? Well, listen, there's a bunch of scams that are a lot harder to spot this time of year. They're not, uh, they're not new scams, 
but like I said, harder to spot. Yeah, this time of year you get a lot more unsolicited communication, especially about online orders and deliveries. Let's do a lightning round. What are the, well, this is your term, Adam, pantheon of ishings. Go ahead. Well, classic is phishing, and that's where you get an email from someone and it's claiming me an update for an order that you made, but you, what you don't realize is you click on the link and it's either a malicious attachment or it's a phony website. And as with any email, as we continue to tell everyone, check the sender and the URL, make sure that it's logical, and then practice extreme caution with the attachments. Yeah, I mean, attachments, forget it. You know, Travis, my point of view on that is if there's an attachment, I'm deleting it immediately. No way, it's not happening. Unless it's from somebody I know. Um, and then call. Otherwise I ignore it anyway, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> always, always. So there's another, you know, there's vishing, which I, I, um, I think this is BS personally, but you know, voice-based phishing, it, it can be a call. It's just, you know, and let's just call it phone fraud. Yeah, and it's very often from a bank or claiming to be from a bank. Or the IRS. Yeah, yeah. well, whatever. It's, it's just some jerk trying to get you to be scared. What's the next one? Smishing or sending phishing messages through texts or SMS. Uh, these are a lot harder to spot this time of year since a lot of deliveries will send you regular updates through text, but with shortened links. So it could take you to a FedEx page or it could take you to, yet again, a malware download or a phony website. You're so obsessed with the malware. I swear I've never had that happen to me. Blech. Anyway, anything else? Travis, you mentioned quishing. What, what the heck is <laughs> quishing? <laughs> Sounds gross, but uh, uh, it's the latest addition to the Pantheon of Ishings. And that's when someone uh, sends you or tries to get you to scan a QR code that, what yet again, will lead you to phishing websites or malware. It's the same problem with uh, smishing text, where a lot of the time you can't tell where it's going to lead you until you actually open the link. <sighs> All right. You know, QR code is basically fine for opening up a menu at a restaurant if you want a no-touch experience. But otherwise, they're, they're so stupid. Don't use them. It's dumb. Yeah, especially because uh, if you get that in an email, if an email says, please click on this QR code, what that means is it got past a spam firewall. But you're not clicking on a QR code, Travis. You're pointing a camera at it. You're scanning a QR code. Also, yeah. one day there's going to be squishing, which is where someone texts you a QR code. And anyway, they just like hug you. They just most, hug you to death. And then you're dead. They just sit on you. Yeah. yeah. Most of these will follow similar beats to one another, but the lessons are all the same. You got to treat any incoming communication with suspicion. Don't respond in a panic, especially if it's marked urgent. And if you order something off a retail website, go to the source if you don't want remorse. Go to directly to that site rather than clicking on links or downloading attachments, please. Okay, so if you don't want squishing, act with suspicion. And keep an eye on your accounts. If you're buying gifts for people or making travel plans, there's going to be a lot of account activity out there, especially with money coming out of your account. Keep track of what you spend. Check to see if there's anything that looks suspicious and just go about your life. And that's our tinfoil swan. You guys have to love squishing. I mean, think about it. Texting, QR code. Oh, anyway. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. 
You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. <laughs>